Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 14, verses 13 and 14, and then from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Uh, I didn't introduce myself before, so let me do that now. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. Uh, it's my privilege to be with you as we uh, look at God's word this morning. We need a net for catching days to borrow Annie Dillard's famous phrase, because how you spend your days is how you spend your life. We need a way of intentionally doing our days together as a church family, what previous generations have called a rule of life, that is, a, a, a series of habits and disciplines that shape and form the way we live together. And that's what this series of sermons has been all about, four daily habits, four daily liturgies, if you will, to better love God and others. And so the first was kneeling prayer three times a day. Uh, the second was one meal with others, if it's possible for you on a daily basis. And then this morning, uh, this third daily habit that we're hoping to integrate into our life is one hour with no phone every day. One hour with no phone every day as a way to practice neighbor love. And that's really what this sermon is about. And so as we work through the texts that we've read together, uh, we're going to do so along these three lines, looking at first what, what is the practice of neighbor love? How does Jesus model it for us here, particularly in Matthew chapter 14? Why are phones such a threat? Why go after phones this morning uh, in, in this way? And then thirdly, where is it ultimately that neighbor love comes from? What is the source? And so we want to see the practice and the threat and the source of neighbor love with particular application to uh, the danger of some of the technologies uh, that have become such a crucial part of our lives. And so let's walk through the text together first seeing the practice of neighbor love, because that is the goal, not the rule itself. The goal is neighbor love. One hour with no phone each day is a trellis, it's a support, it's an aid to the ultimate goal, which is to become better lovers of people. But it's not the goal itself. And so this is a sermon 
about neighbor love, about the kind of love that Jesus showed in Matthew 14. And so let's read those verses together again and pay careful attention. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion upon them and healed their sick. Now there's a lot in those two short verses. Matthew 14 is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of Jesus' most famous miracles, but that miracle later in the chapter is made possible by this miracle right here in these verses. And this miracle is even more impressive, at least to me, uh, than the one that comes later. Now let me show you. And it begins with just the very first phrase in those verses. Now when Jesus heard this, which refers to the news of John the Baptist's death at the hand of King Herod. John was his relative and friend, presumably. But even more than that, their lives and callings were intertwined. And so it's hard to know exactly, but the indication is that there was a certain amount of love and fondness between the two of them. Their mothers were very close, of course, in Luke chapter 1. We read about that. Regardless, Jesus takes the news hard. This is clear from the text. It's been a long season of ministry, and then the news about John's death comes, and it pushes him over the edge. And so we're told that he began to look for a way to withdraw to find a desolate place where he could pray and recover. He needed a self-care day. He needed a spa day, if you want to, if you want to say it that way. But the crowds, somehow they knew where he was going. And as he traveled across the lake, they ran around the outside and got to the place where he was landing before he got there. They beat him there so that when he pushed the boat ashore, there they were waiting for him. Now, I can tell you how I would have reacted. And I will straight up run away from folks that I know in Publix on Sunday afternoon when I'm worn out from Sunday mornings at church. But that's me. But Jesus, it says, he saw them and he didn't roll his eyes. He didn't sigh and run away. (laughs) He didn't steal himself to greet them. He was tired. He was grieving. The people were being pushy and demanding and not respecting the boundaries that he was clearly trying to create. And yet it says there in verse 14 that he saw them and he had compassion on them. And that's the miracle. And that miracle led to the more famous miracle later in the chapter. But I'm far more amazed by what I see in Jesus here than I am even there. You see, the heart of neighbor love is presence. And that's what Jesus offered to the crowd. He got into the boat looking for solitude because no matter who you are, whether introverted or extroverted or even the Son of God himself, people at least on the scale that Jesus dealt with in his ministry, people require enormous energy. And when that energy gets depleted, what happens to most of us is is it's easy to begin to shut down and to shut off and to pull in to yourself. In fact, you have to do that from time to time. The experts tell us in order to get back out in love. If you don't, you yourself will start to run on empty and be in danger of breakdown. But Jesus was able to push through his own tiredness and grief 
and to be present with this crowd in their need. So look again at his reaction. It says, he saw them. And that is always the first step. It's where neighbor love begins. And if you've been to a person of Jesus' study here at our church, you know this. Often we are so distracted by our own busyness or our own grief that we miss those around us. We see them, but barely, because we're rushing past or because we're just so inwardly focused. We see them, but we don't really see them. I would have looked at this crowd, just to be quite honest, and seen a bunch of demanding freeloaders and probably resented them. Jesus looked and he saw something more. In Mark's gospel, it says this, he saw them and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. You see, these people, the truth of these people, I would have seen them and thought, man, what demanding, selfish people. But the truth is that these people weren't demanding, they were desperate. And this is neighbor love. To be so attentive and slow and engaged with people that you see them clearly enough to feel compassionate about their struggles and their sins. So much so that you open up your heart to them and then move toward them with action to help meet their needs. Now this was not a one-off event in Jesus' life. The gospel The Gospels are full of stories of Jesus' neighbor love, and they all follow the same pattern. He is present and attentive enough to emotionally connect with the experience of others in order to love them. He sees and has compassion and then offers practical help, and his command to you and to me is just this, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. That's the practice of neighbor love. But secondly... Secondly, I want to talk about the threat to neighbor love. And the threat, at least one of the threats, and the one we're going to talk about in the most detail today, is our devices and the distracted life that they are training us in. And so the opposite of presence, which is the essence of neighbor love, is distraction, absence, being with people, but not really being there, not, not, not really there with them because you're in your own head, or in this case, because you can't pull yourself away from the screen that's right in front of you. Now, with this, let me make a connection to the imagery in the Romans 13 passage. And so if you would look at that, if you have that in front of you, but th- in, that, in that passage, there's two paragraphs. And the first paragraph, which is verses 8 through 10, is the lesson. And the second paragraph, which is verses 11 through 14, is the application of the lesson. Paul's lesson is this. He wants us to know that the law is about love, that the law is not a book of rules. It's a manual for loving others. And so he says in verse 9, for the commandments, all of them are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the application is that in order to love, in that second paragraph, he says, you have to wake up. You have to shake off the spiritual sleepiness that we all experience and rouse yourself to be present and aware and paying attention to others through both resistance and intentionality. You lay aside, he says there, what uh, he calls the works of darkness. In other words, you strip your life of everything that feeds the flesh, verse 14, 
And the flesh there is the selfish part of you that doesn't want to love others. You have to cast it off, he says. You have, to, you have to fight against it. You have to not allow it to have control in your life. Anything that doesn't help you love, anything that, that makes you more flesh-like, more me-centered rather than others-centered, you just get rid of it. You lay it aside, and then you take up the weapons of love and sharpen them, what he calls the armor of light there in verse 12. And so resistance and then intentionality. Now, how does this apply to our subject this morning? Well, the technologies that we all have and enjoy, they are not neutral. Uh, They have incredible capacity to aid in neighbor love. Technology can help you be present with others. We've experienced that on Zoom and FaceTime over the past number of weeks. But these things also have incredible capacity to destroy neighbor love. They can distract and train you in a life of distraction. And we see this, and everybody that really is in the industry even, and that everybody's concerned about this. The key, though, is to know where your technology helps and to use it intentionally with tremendous wisdom and caution, and then to know where it is a threat and to resist and to cast it off. And my experience, just to be quite honest, is that our phones, for most of us, most of the time anyway, they have become an instrument of the flesh, They train us to live self-consumed, distracted lives that destroy our capacity for neighbor love by keeping us from being fully present with one another. The allure of the phone, of course, is that you can be present everywhere all the time. The danger is that when you try to be present everywhere, you end up being present nowhere. Or to use, uh, to use um, a, a sentence from Justin Early, he says, when we try to free ourselves from the limitations of our presence, we always become enslaved to absence. Now, there's something profound happening here. We desire omnipresence, which is to say that we desire to be like God, which is itself the essence of sin. This is a sinful desire on our parts to not admit and live according to the limitations of our createdness, but to desire instead God-like status. But there is no such thing as human omnipresence. Only God can be present everywhere, all of him everywhere at the same time, fully present everywhere at the same time. That, That only God can do. For us, there are only two options. To borrow from Brendan Manning, a a turn of phrase that's really helpful, he says, you can be now here or you can be nowhere. Those are the only two options. Now, so divide that word in half, now, here, or nowhere. You see, rejecting our limits comes with disastrous consequences. We have become addicted to distraction. We're losing our ability to think deeply to be present and occupied with just our thoughts, to take note of what's happening around us. We escape into our phones in any free moment, at the stoplight, in the bathroom. I mean, the presence of our phone makes it hard to be present with the people right in front of us. Our devices are weakening our seeing muscles. And seeing is the beginning of all neighbor love, as we've said. And so much of the technology that's being produced today, so phones and watches and websites and streaming services and all of these things, they are carefully designed 
to capture and hold our attention. Listen to Alan Noble. Like an over-eager child tugging on our sleeve, begging, look what I can do, Daddy. Look at me. Look at me. Our technology covets every glance. Flashing lights, vibrations, bells ringing, little red dots, alerts, notifications, pop-up windows, commercials, news tickers, everything is designed to capture our attention. There's so much to say here that I don't have time to say. Phones are the new slot machines. And we are being shaped by these technologies in ways that we are just beginning to understand. Tony Rinke notes how online disembodiment makes embodied fellowship harder and harder. We're forgetting how to be with one another. We're forgetting even how to have a conversation. That's the premise of Sherry Turkle's book, Reclaiming Conversation. She writes, we are being silenced by our technologies in ways we are being cured of talking. These silences, she writes, have led to a crisis of empathy that have diminished us. Now, she's not a Christian, at least not that I know of, but she notes how the attention-grabbing nature of our devices is destroying our, bil- our ability to see others and to give our hearts to them. She chronicles what she calls the flight from conversation, how younger generations especially would much rather text than talk, and how that itself is training them in relating to others without developing any deep emotional connection. I mean, why do we answer the text when we're out of lunch with a friend? With a friend. I mean, we all do it. Everybody does it. Why? Why not just be with the person we're there with? And and one of the answers is because we don't see it as an interruption anymore. It's another connection. But this hyper-connectedness that we now experience means you're never fully present. Before our phones, the boring bits of life weren't so boring. We could give our kids a bath and play with them instead of letting them splash around while we scroll through Instagram on our phone just biding our time. Now, we can't even sit through a red light without reaching over to grab something to look at because our brains have been so conditioned to want new input all the time, constantly, and it's destroying neighbor love. And so, we need to resist. And so, this habit, one hour with no phone, It's just a small way to shake off all the distractions and wake up to the people who are right in front of us. Now, it's just a start. It's just a start. Andy Crouch has written a book called The TechWise Family that should be required reading of all parents. It's absolutely fabulous. And his suggestion is actually one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. Now, can you imagine the protests from the people in your house if you tried to go a whole day without looking at your phone. And so let's, let's start with the one day, I mean, the one hour a day. He, Andy Crouch, he puts it this way. He says, you don't have to become Amish, but you probably have to become closer to Amish than you think or, that you might, or than, closer than you might be comfortable. And so one hour with no phone is a small step, but it's a good step. It's a good beginning step. And again, the goal is not to get a gold star by your name. It's to be intentionally making yourself more available to those around you, to resist distraction in order to be attentive and present as acts of neighbor love. Or, as Justin Early puts it, the goal is to regularly cut off the ability to be reached by everyone and anyone so that in those limits we can be fully present to someone, to your kids when you come home from work, or to the family at the family meal, or to the friend over lunch, to choose love. 
to forget yourself in others, to be absorbed in their struggles and successes, to enter into all of their hopes and fears and longings and despairs, and to have their experience smite your soul, to use language that B.B. Warfield uses to describe what the work of incarnating love looks like. And that's hard work. I mean, these things are, these things are not complicated, but they are hard. And because they're hard, we need, to have, we need to have our lives connected to the right power source to enable us to live this way. And so that's the third and the last thing, to see the source of neighbor love. And we see it in these texts, but we see it everywhere in the Bible. God himself is the source of neighbor love. And if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Or turn that around. What Jesus is like in Matthew chapter 14, for example, is what God is like. Sin is the natural bent in all of us to be curved in ourselves. But God is naturally, in his essence, outgoingly loving. Just as we see Jesus being there in Matthew chapter 14. Christians believe in God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that doctrine is so crucial because it sets him apart from all the other gods of the people. If God were solitary, like Allah, for example, then he could not be a God of love. If there was no one else to love from all eternity, he would necessarily be inwardly looking and not outgoingly loving. But the only, and the only reason that such a God would create would be some sort of private self-gratification. But if God is Trinity, then he has to be loving because it's what he's been doing from all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving one another from before the beginning of time. And so love is a part of his essence. The very nature of the triune God is to be effusive and bountiful. The Father rejoices to have another beside him, and he finds his very self in pouring out his love. Creation, then, is about the spreading, the diffusion, the outward explosion of his love into all that he has created. Those are Michael Reeves's words. This God, this is the God we meet in the person of Jesus, who was sent into the world by the Father on a mission of love. God with us, God present. In all the mess of this world, seeing and having compassion and healing and ultimately dying on the cross and rising from the dead to redeem his people from the curse of sin. That's our gospel. Michael Reeves has written a great little book on the Trinity. That's so good. And in it, he writes about how God's love is so powerful, so profound, so irresistible that it it excites love in response in those that it comes to. In other words, you love by being loved. You've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people, and it's true, but loved people love. And so only when you have a profound experience of God's love for you will you become a person who loves others. And this is what Paul's referring to down at the very end of Romans chapter 13 when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an image of, of repentance and faith. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, source your life in Jesus' love for you. Make his love the source of, of all of your living and loving. He saw you harassed and helpless at the lowest moment of your life. He had compassion, and so he came all the way from heaven to earth to die in your place so that you could know the Father's love for you, 
Source your life in him and his love, and your life will be full of the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, and patience, and kindness, and not the works of the flesh. Envy, and jealousy, and rivalry, and anger, and so forth, which is what we read from Galatians 5 just a couple of days ago. Faith working through love. Faith energizing love. Now that's a whole life's work. And so let's just start here. Put the phone down for an hour every day. Be present with the people you love. Look them in the eye. Ask questions. Fight for compassion. Call the people you've not seen in a while. Resist the temptation to turn inward in self-concern. Keep showing up. Because that was Jesus' way. And so, it is also the way of all who've been loved by him. Amen? Pray with me. And so, Father, behold the manner of love that you have shown to us that we would be called the children of God. You have loved us so deeply from before the beginning of time that you sent your Son into the world to die on a cruel cross and to be raised again that, that, that he might turn to us and, and say, now the relationship that I've had with my Father from all eternity is available to you. He can be your Father too, and you can know him the way that I know him, and he will love you with the very love with which he's loved me. Uh, Lord Jesus, you have made that possible. You have made uh, the experience of that kind of love with the Father possible for us. And it's an overwhelming thought. And so we ask that you send your spirit into our hearts to continually be uh, helping us to grasp what is the height and depth and breadth and width of the love of God for us. And spirit, we pray that you would be confirming to us the reality of our sonship and then turning us around outside of ourselves towards people in our lives to be attentive and caring and loving towards them with the same love that we have been shown. Holy Spirit, make us lovers of people and make us wise as we consider uh, things like technology in our lives and we, and we ask questions about, does this make me a better lover or a worse lover? And where we find things that make us a worse lover of you and of others, would we just cast those things aside? because we know that this is the great ultimate goal and it is abundant life, that we would love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and love others as ourselves. And so, Holy Spirit, help us, work in us, give to us all of the energy and strength and wisdom we need to be great lovers of others. Forgive us for the way we so easily become consumed with ourselves. Shape us into the very image of Jesus, we pray. And it's in his name we pray as well and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So here are the words of this benediction. It's not our normal benediction, but I've chosen it because you'll see in it the promise that God is saying that he will equip you, that he will outfit you with everything that you need uh, to carry on the mission of love that he has given to us. And so receive these words as the promise of just that. Uh, that that he that we have everything we need for a life of godliness. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. God bless you. See you next week. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations Ooh, May God be gracious to us